0: We're currently in a series on uh, Philippians, and one of the themes of Philippians is that it's about uh, joy. Um, One of the other themes is about suffering, but one of the other things that shows up in Philippians is this talk of citizenship. Uh, It's uh, later on in Philippians, but it shows up in today's passage as well. And so I want to talk a little bit about what it means to be a citizen to start. uh, Let's just keep it, let's bring it home um, and ask the question how do you become an American citizen? Well, as you probably know, you got to take a test as part of the very probably more involved process than that. But there's a test, and there's a practice test online. So I went and did that. There's about 20 questions, and I took the first eight, and I'm going to share them with you to see if you guys could become American citizens. And I will tell you they're pretty easy. You should know most of them. The first one that popped up, and I imagine this is a random list from a variety of questions, but uh, the first one came up was this. Um, it was multiple choice, but I didn't write down the multiple choice. So you just gotta you just gotta be smart. The question is, what is the rule of law any guesses if it was multiple choice you might you might be able to get it i got it in multiple choice but i didn't write them down what is the rule of law quote rule of law well according to this citizenship test uh, from uh, whatever.gov it is the idea that everyone must follow the law which I guess is essential to being an American. I'm not sure it's always worked out that way, but it is on the citizenship test. So, okay, next question. This one's much easier. What is the two major political parties in the United States? And the answer does not include the Whigs, although that was one of the model of choice. What what are they? Democrat Republican, good. You you've gotten one out of uh, uh, one out of two. That's fifty percent. That's you know you you've got your chances in in your favor. Okay, then the third one is the idea of self-government is in the first three words of the Constitution. What are these words? Oh, good job, good job, good job. Okay, uh, another one. I think you should get this. Why does the flag have fifty stars? States. Yeah, I gave it away. There you go. So that one's an easy one. 50 states, 50 stars. Exactly. Number five. What territory did the United States buy from France in 1803? Louisiana Territory. How many knew that one? All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. That's good. You were paying attention. I I, I guessed that one correctly as well out of multiple choice. I had a little easier. Okay. Here's one. Where is the Statue of Liberty? New York Harbor. Yeah, that was a hard one. Number seven, why did the colonists fight the British? Now, I feel like this would work better as an essay question Um, uh, because I imagine it's probably, you know, a fair amount of historical interpretation involved in this, but it's not. It's presented as a multiple choice because hashtag American citizen. Um, Is it A, because of high taxes, B, because the British army stayed in their houses, C, because they didn't have self-government, or D, all of these answers. All of these answers according to this citizen test. All right, number eight. Who is the, quote, father of our country? It's not God or Jesus, against popular opinion. GW, you're right. George Washington is the correct answer. Uh, Number nine, this is the last one, and this is confusing to me. What are two ways that Americans can participate in their democracy? Is it A, write a newspaper and call senators and representatives? Is it B, give an elected official your opinion on an issue and join a community group? Is it C, vote and join a civic group? Or is it D, all of these answers? It's, it's all of these answers, which is way more than two, so it really shouldn't be all of these answers. It contradicts itself. But those are the answers. So, so it sounds like you guys would have passed uh, the majority of these. So good job. You can now be American citizens. I start there because uh, that's what we're going to talk about. Not what it means to be an American citizen. We're going to talk more specifically, what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? What does it mean to be a citizen in heaven? And how does it, how does it compare to some of those questions or some of the expectations we have as Americans? To do that, we're going to look at Philippians chapter 1, so if you've got your handout or a Bible or a smartphone, you can go there. We're going to start with verse 27, Philippians 1, verse 27 and following. We're going to get into chapter 2 of Philippians as well um, as we continue to work our way through the book. And uh, it starts out by saying this, verse 27. Now, we've already looked at the first couple couple verses of, of, of chapter 1. We've spent the last two Sundays looking at those, so here's what it says now. It says, whatever happens... Consider yourselves, uh, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The the, the translation there, whatever happens, uh, can be translated a number of different ways. One one way of saying is just one more thing. One, one more thing, friends who are listening and reading this letter, one more thing, uh, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. But it's interesting, the, the, the word there for conduct yourselves is the same word that we get the word politic from. Uh, it's a Greek word, uh, the root word is politic, and so that translates pretty pretty uh, phonetically. And uh, later on, it's used in Philippians to refer to citizens. What it actually is saying literally is behave like a citizen, worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is weighted language. Because the Philippian church um, was made up of uh, is a Roman province. So they were citizens of Rome. And if you're familiar with the book of Acts or the story of Paul, you realize that citizenship in Rome was a big deal. It came with a lot of rights and a lot of privileges and some expectations. And so he's saying behave as citizens, but they had to have known in the larger context of Paul's letter that they weren't talking just simply behave yourself as a Roman citizen or as an American citizen. He says, behave yourself as a citizen. And later we realize he talks about citizen of heaven. That's Philippians 3.20, citizens of heaven, worthy of the gospel. And I got some baggage with that phrase. Anytime someone says you got to be worthy of something, I feel like it's been used in my life more often in negative ways. It's similar to phrases like act like a man or act more like a lady, you know, be more American, be worthy. Oftentimes it has to do with being more, doing more. And that's what I'm gonna look at today. What does it mean to be worthy of the gospel? Is it mean just doing more? Is it is it is it acting a certain way? Is it behaving a certain way? What does that mean? And what does it look like for us to be citizens of heaven? That's what he's gonna talk about in the next couple of verses. What does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? What does it mean for us to live as citizens of heaven, to conduct ourselves in a way that is worthy of the gospel? So the next verse, he says this. He says, Then, whether I come and see you, will only hear about you in my absence. I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. He says, if you do this, the stuff that I'm going to talk about, then whether I come and see you or not is irrelevant. Remember, Paul's uh, in prison in Rome, so he's, he's you know, a month or so's journey away from Philippi. He's, he's, he's disconnected from the church. He hopes to come and visit them again. But he says, even if I'm not able to come visit you, if you stand firm in your faith, you'll stand out in such a way that I'll hear about it. Here's one of the first principles of being a citizen of heaven. You will stand out your story will precede you. Your testimony will go on before you. People will most likely hear about you. You'll stand out for a lot of reasons we're going to look at here because the ways in which God calls us to be citizens or to behave, the ways in which God calls us to live is very different from the rest of the world. And he says, if you do this, I'm going to hear about it because there's no way I wouldn't hear about it if you're doing it right. So that's the first one. You'll stand out for standing firm in your faith. The next one, he goes on, verse 28. He says, without being frighted in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. In other words, he says, as citizens of heaven, we should have confidence in the future. We should have confidence in what God is able to do. I was uh, sitting uh, around a table the other day with a bunch of pastors. It's a dangerous place to sit. And uh, someone was talking about a TV personality. Um, I won't say his name. You would be familiar with him. I'm not a fan, so now you can guess. Um, but a very well-known TV personality. And this one pastor was talking, and he, he made this comment where he's like, you know, that person will eventually fall. Like that person's—it's—he's not gonna last, and when it falls, he's gonna fall big time, and his credibility will be gone away. And uh, I was just really struck by this because I gotta be honest with you—I've become fairly cynical. i have become fairly cynical. I—I this idea that I'm confident that God's gonna have the final say and God will win—like I'm not always feeling that. And this other pastor was, like, now the 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 this person who's just I I think an epitome of, of kind of what's wrong with the world is gonna eventually fall. That's just how it works. And it got me really thinking, you know, the scripture talks about this a lot. He says it right here. He says you you know, you'll be saved and God will just des- these other people will be destroyed, the people who are opposing you. Um, but this is a common theme, especially in Proverbs and especially in Psalms. So I just want to read a couple of Proverbs for you because, like, I struggle to believe in this. So the more I read it, I'm like, well, maybe this might be true. This this might be what it means to have faith in God. If Proverbs 11.5 says it like this. The righteousness of the blameless, blameless makes their path straight, but the wicked are brought down by their own wickedness. Proverbs 11.5. In other words, if you're living a wicked life, you'll eventually see your own end. Proverbs 28.10 says this, "...whoever leads the upright along an evil path will fall into their own trap, but the blameless will receive a good inheritance." Proverbs 11.23 and 24 says this, "...the desire of the righteous ends only in good, but the hope of the wicked only in wrath." Do you, do you see? It's this kind of conversation that if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, it'll ultimately work out, and God is on your side, and you, love will eventually win. God will eventually win. But if you're if you're living a wicked life and you're doing evil, like that'll you, your fall is imminent. Proverbs 11:24 says, "One person gives freely, that gains even more; another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty." Man, there was something about the the book of Proverbs. And, and the biblical writers throughout the book of uh, of the without, throughout the, all the different books of the Bible that really honestly believed against all evidence, often, that those who were on God's side would eventually win, and those who were engaged in deceit and greed, and all of these wicked things, leading other people astray even would eventually see their end. This belief that eventually that good, or a.k.a. God, would win out over evil. And I have to ask this question. If we don't, if I don't, if we don't believe that God will have the final say, what do we believe about God? If we can't come to a place where like, you know what, God's actually going to have the final say here. If we can't say that, then what, what is it that we believe about? What does that say about our view of who God is and what God is capable of? Do we believe in God at all, or just in a set of principles that this world isn't interested in? The early church and, and, and the biblical writers believed that eventually God would win out over evil. And the key word there is eventually. This was a key part of that belief. Not right away. Eventually. It would take time. And here's why confidence in God matters, why confidence in the future matters at all. I I have found that the more confident I am, and I'll be honest with you, I wasn't feeling very confident this morning or this week for various reasons. And so I was thinking about confidence. Um, And and one of the things you see in Paul's letters is an immense amount of confidence in who, who God is. And there's been seasons in my life where I've had that confidence and other seasons where I've not been so confident. But confidence is so important because the more confident you are in who God is and what God is capable of, the more risks you're going to be willing to take. We talked about last week how taking risks in the name of Jesus is essential to our faith. We've got to be willing to put things we value at risk for the sake of what God has called us to. And the more confident we are in God's big plan for the world, the more likely we're willing to put those things at risk. And I don't know what those things are for you. I I, I heard some feedback last week, and and it it sounded like I was it was you know I supposedly it was a fairly convicting sermon. And uh, you know, I think everyone kinda goes to their own thing. And and I, I heard somebody talk about like, you know, uh, in, in the context of money and I wasn't even thinking about it in the context of money. Just just full disclosure, money, money doesn't like money's numbers to me. It doesn't like I just it I it's not a hold up for me and I'm not bragging. I'm just saying like my brain thinks differently and money's like not a big deal. We got to have enough. And then when we do, we try to give it away. And and Alyssa knows this to be true. Like I don't even think like, who cares? Like there are a lot of other things that I value more than money. And it's my time and my presence, my energy. And and I've got to be willing to put those things at risk. And I don't know what it is for you. Maybe money is the thing for you. Maybe it's your time. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's the future of your children. That's one of those for me. I really stress about what Finn is exposed to and and, and, and what risk I put him in. And we've put him in a fair amount of risk just choosing to live where we live. But the more confident I am in who God is, the more I'm willing to take those risks. The more confident in, in who God is means the more creative I can be, the more resolve that I have in the midst of suffering, and the more joy I can have in the midst of suffering. I think it's essential. And this is why it's important, because being a citizen of heaven, even one confident that God will win in the end, that love will win in the end, doesn't mean that it's free of suffering. Look at the next verse, verse 29. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ. Let's we'll just pause there for a second. He says, Here is God's gift to you. That's that's the word here, granted. Here is God's, God has this wonderful gift for you. Friends, I, you, you all get a gift. Think of like Oprah, I was like, You get this, and you get this, and you get this. God has granted this to you, not only to believe in Him, which is great, but also to suffer for Him. You're like, "Can I put that gift back under my chair?" <laughs> you know, like I don't want to I don't want that gift. No, it has been granted to you to suffer for Christ since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now here that I still have. We're not told what that suffering is for the Philippian church, but we are given some clues. He says you saw the same struggle I had and the struggle I currently have. Well, we know Paul's struggle very clearly. Paul's currently in prison because it was a proclamation of the gospel. And if you go back to the book of Acts and you look at Acts chapter 16, you can see what happened when Paul was planning the church in Philippi. It's a fascinating, beautiful story. Paul runs across this uh, wonderful woman by the name of Lydia. She was uh, a business owner in the Roman world, which was a big deal. Um, and she would have been upper to middle class, if not uh, upper class, because she was a dealer in purple cloths. So she was like a Rolex dealer or uh, what's an expensive purse? Coach. She was like she she sold Coach. You know she built them. You know like she was she was the CEO of Coach. Like she she dealt in purple cloth. That's what it says in in Acts chapter sixteen. And and if we understand the context, that meant she dealt in really fine materials that were that the wealthy would pay. So here's this woman that's an upper-middle class a business owner in a Roman world where women didn't own business. And uh, she meets Paul at a place where people would go to pray, and she comes to choose to follow Jesus. And then she invites Paul into her home, when most likely she becomes a leader in the early church, and she it becomes the home of— So that's one story. And then right after that, Paul's walking through the city of Philippi, and he runs across this little little girl. This little girl had an evil spirit who allowed her to tell the fortunes of people, and she was a slave. And Paul wasn't really interested in doing much about it, but she wouldn't leave Paul alone, as if to say, please, you know, please do something, Paul. I kept following Paul along, and Paul eventually cast the evil spirit out of her. And uh, there's this really great line. It says, once her owners realized they couldn't make money from her anymore, they got upset with Paul. I'm paraphrasing. So here the gospel enters Philippi, where Paul even reluctantly ministers to somebody who's vulnerable, that's going to cost these owners a lot of money, and Paul ends up in prison because of it. He rises up the whole town uh, against Paul, and, uh, and, and he ends up in prison. So it is not uncommon for wealth to be made off of unfair practices. That's the, that's the birth of the Philippian church. One of the earliest converts was this young woman who was being exploited as a slave, and Paul delivered her. And people got upset. And when Christ is introduced into community, this is challenged. People making money on those unfair practices are going to get upset So I want to remind us that when we talk about suffering for Christ, we're not talking about, you know, because we had a bad day or because uh, terrible things happened to us outside of our control. The Bible has plenty to say about that, but that's not what we're talking about in the early church. We're talking about getting into trouble or ending up in prison because you pushed back against the powers of this world. That's what happened to Paul in Philippi. That's why Paul ended up in Rome in prison, and he's saying that same, same thing is still a problem in the Philippian church. Now, let's step back and just have a conversation real quick. America's great sin is making money from unjust practices. True or false? It should be a citizen question. Uh, Specifically, slavery, free labor, that made a lot of people very wealthy. Slavery is a product, and this is a phrase that I've learned from our multi-ethnic IQ training, so I encourage you to write it down and remember it as well. Uh, Slavery and racism and these types of things is a product uh, and is fueled by the indiscriminate pursuit of wealth at the expense of others. So just think about that phrase, the indiscriminate pursuit of wealth at the expense of others. Slavery, racism today... This young girl in, the, in Philippi at the birth of a church. The indiscriminate pursuit of wealth at the expense and exploitation of others. And I would say, America is known for the indiscriminate pursuit of wealth at the expense of others. Many of the industries that we, you know, I'm wearing right now is probably involved in something that was close to slave labor. We know this is, um, there's a slaveryfootprint.org you can go to and answer a bunch of questions, and it'll tell you how many slaves were uh, owned in order to produce the various things that we use. Um, It's a fascinating and very convicting website. So America is known for the indiscriminate pursuit of wealth and comfort. This is what we talked about last week. So we're just building on it uh, at the expense of others. Do you agree or disagree? So the question that I'm wrestling with now is, um, when was the last time our church or yourself ran into problems because we refused to cooperate with these such systems? When was the last time you ran into trouble? Because those who were making money off the vulnerable ran into you, and you had prevented it. When was the last time you got in trouble because of your opposition to this way of living? Because your opposition to this way of living was so disruptive that people tried to get rid of you. You know, like you got to quiet Joe down. You're causing too much trouble in this community. We were doing fine until you showed up. Here's the question, and, and this is meant to convict all of us. Is our presence as followers of Jesus disruptive to the indiscriminate pursuit of wealth at the expense of others, or are we a contributing factor? Are we part of the problem? i leave that there. You need to sit with that. We all need to sit with that. He goes on, and he says, uh, he says, you've suffered for Christ. You've 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 stood up for justice and love and compassion. It's gotten you in trouble. Um, something we should all aspire to for the right reasons. He says, going on chapter two, he says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ if any comfort from his love if any common sharing in the spirit if any tenderness and compassion then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love being one in spirit and of one mind so there's a number of categories that kind of make up citizens of heaven and this is one of them we will be united but i got to be very clear about something. Not all unity is the same. Not all unity is equal. I was reading about this. Uh, uh, N.T. Wright did a study on Philippians, and he was talking about unity, and he made this, I think, brilliant point. It's not, it's not original, but it, but it got me thinking. And he said, you know, um, they're, they're, uh, one of the great unified forces of the modern era was the Nazis, extremely united around a single cause. So, so not all unity is equal. We have to ask ourselves, what are we united around? And he says this. This is what we should be united around. It, it, he says, uh, um, encouragement in Christ, comfort in love, the same spirit, tenderness, uh, which, fun fact, is the, the Greek word for bowels, <clears throat> that kind of tenderness. Um, it, 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 you know how, like, uh, your, your love sits in your heart right? Like love with all of my heart. Well, in the ancient world, you, you had compassion and tenderness from your bowels. In fact, earlier in chapter one, he says we should love each other with the compassion of Christ. The, the literal translation is you should, we should love each other with the bowels of Christ. And it doesn't remain that way in a lot of translations because I think we would get confused, but that's that kind of deep guttural compassion for one another. He says, so tenderness and compassion, same love, same spirit, same mind. These are words that are similar to the fruit of the Spirit. You know, fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He says we should be focused on the person of Christ and the Spirit, the work of the Spirit, and then it will be evident through the the encouragement and, and the comfort and the love and the tenderness and the compassion. In other words, not all unity is equal. Unity for unity's sake isn't good. The greatest, you, you know, the, the most important thing, is that we are united around comfort, love, tenderness, and compassion. That unites us. I would go as far as say this. Don't become united around a cause. Whatever cause you want to jump on board with. Whatever political force, whatever you think it means to be an American citizen, whatever you know, whatever action group you're a part of, don't jump on a cause if the goal isn't love and compassion. That's what we're about. Verse 3 says this. He goes on, and says, "...do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others." So the sixth thing that makes up a citizen of heaven is that we are selfless and we are humble. Humility wasn't a virtue in the ancient world. Sometimes we think of it as a virtue. That's a, that's a, that's a product of Christianity, if we're honest. Um, It wasn't uh, in the ancient world. It wasn't in the Roman Empire. Humility was not something that you aspired towards. Humility was equal to humiliation, and now we view those differently. We say, well, we don't want to be humiliated, but we should be humble and put others above ourselves. And we see that as a virtue, and it's because of the person of Jesus and the letters of Paul and the Gospels. Um, and, And I love this because at the very beginning, we were asking the question, what does it mean worthy of the Gospel? And so many times, as I said, worthy of something usually means like becoming more, becoming better. Stepping up the scales, you know, w- going upward. And what we find here, and you're going to see it even more in the next passage, which, which uh, is, is for next week, that being worthy of the gospel isn't about going up. It is about going down. Being selfless and being more and more humble. Being willing to put others' interests above ourselves considering the pain and the difficulty and the injustice and and caring about that. It's about being less and loving more and becoming humble and lowing yourself. That's the upside down kingdom way of being worthy. So here's the citizen heaven test. Uh, being a citizen of heaven means this. Is it a? stand out for standing firm in your faith? B, be confident in God and God's plan for the future. C, be willing to suffer in Jesus' name. D, being united around love and compassion in the name of Jesus. Or E, be selfless and humble. Or is it F? All of the above. All of the above. Let's pray. God be coming for you, and we give you thanks. We ask that uh, the words that uh, Paul uh, penned to the Philippian church would continue to inspire and challenge us. God, you have called us to good trouble. Forgive us for those times where we avoided trouble in the name of comfort, in the name of (laughs) putting ourselves first instead of others. God, give us such great confidence in your work in our lives. That we would step out, become advocates and voices for those who don't have it. That the systems of this world, the ways in which it exploits people, would find us a nuisance. Help us be the right kind of nuisance. Not that we are trying to cause problems in this world as if we can't live at peace with all people. Lord, we want to live at peace with all people. But Lord, when there is injustice, help us be a nuisance. Give us courage. And give us wisdom to discern, as you, as you said earlier. Give us wisdom. In your name we pray. Amen.